You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today, Hawaii entrepreneur Hank Rogers is where America's day begins. He's in Guam this week for a sustainability conference as part of his Blue Planet Alliance, getting global attention on green energy. We talked to Rogers just after the movie Tetris debuted on Apple TV+. Does this addictive tune bring back memories? Hank Rogers is credited with securing the rights to Tetris, the highly addictive Russian game that mesmerized gamers around the globe. We wanted to learn more about his friendship with the game designer, Alexei Pachanov, and the backstory of his determination to convince countries to move towards sustainable energy faster. He talked about how the movie came about. There was a documentary on BBC going way back. I think it was the, like something like 2008. Uh, they did a really good job. Uh, they actually interviewed all the characters that are there in the story. Time goes by, and somebody saw the documentary and said, wow, that would make a movie. And uh, they contacted me, would you like a movie done about your life? And I said, oh, not really. <laughs> but then my daughter said, you know what, uh, you should do it. So she convinced me. Well, it was interesting because I know when I first heard about you, and I was like, oh, yeah, you got the rights to, you know, uh, Tetris. And I didn't really understand. But then, you know, watching this film, it was like, wow, lots of cloak and dagger in the gaming world. (laughs) Or was that Hollywood? I don't know. There is a, well, put it this way, the, um, the feeling was there. I mean, I was obviously in the Soviet Union on a tourist visa, and I'm trying to talk to people that I'm not supposed to talk to. I'm not supposed to talk to citizens. They're not supposed to speak to me. I was certainly not supposed to go into a ministry. It's like going to North Korea today and and, uh, walking into a ministry. I don't think they'll let you do that. I think you would be charged with something, you know. I kind of felt that I might be, you know, having trouble. But Alexei Pajnov tells me that he, he definitely knew he was breaking the law by talking to me. He invited me to his house. So uh, that was a big chance he took, and I was just a little bit naive. And the film, you know, mentions how you became friends. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're like, you know, it's funny. It's best friends forever. When we're in the same city, for example, I lived in Seattle for a year, every other day it's a bottle of wine. This is like tradition that we have. And we're not talking about games or, or Tetris. We're just talking about all kinds of things that friends talk about. Yeah, and we've traveled together, no particular reason, just to have fun. Yeah, we are still really good friends. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is that we couldn't be more different. We don't listen to the same music. We don't, you know, when we went on our trip together, he likes to plan things. He wants to know exactly where we're going, what, where we're staying. And me, I want an adventure. So I want to go somewhere and not know where we're going to stay or who we're going to meet or whatever. So when we went together, one day was his day, one day uh. was my day. And we went back and forth. That was very interesting. And then your families, because, you know, the film talks about your family and his family. And so how has all that, you know, worked? Uh, his family's all in, in uh, Clyde Hill, which is where Bill Gates lives. Um, so his family's all set. So he's happy to be, and he's become, become an American citizen. He doesn't have to work anymore. And so he's mostly doing mathematics or puzzles, the kind of stuff that he likes to do. He's writing a novel. So he keeps himself busy, but he's a little introvert. This is, again, the opposite of me. I'm extrovert. So I'm running around the world trying to get things done. 
and he's just basically staying at home. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I just remember because, you know, you're always real clear on, oh, no, I didn't invent the game. I didn't design the game. I just got the rights. But like I said, this backstory was just fascinating to me watching watching the film. Sometimes people call me Mr. Tetris. I say, no, I'm not Mr. Tetris. Alexei Pajanov is Mr. Tetris. You can call me Dr. Tetris because I kept the, uh, Tetris alive all these years. That's sort of my job is to, to make sure that, that Tetris stays alive. Do you still play it? Uh, from time to time. You know, I don't play it for fun as much as I used to. I'll play it. The other day I was on, what is it, Tamron, Tamron Hall, and I had to play for the first time in ages. And she was playing for the first <laughs> time ever. And she just, I mean, she was awful. She didn't know how to play at all. So I had to, I had to chime in and help her out. But it was, yeah, it was fun. I imagine, though, this film is going to do just that, is introduce the game to another generation, folks who just didn't know anything about it. Hope so. I did happen to see that Mario Brothers, I think, is coming out with the film, too. So I just wondered if there was a little competition between it's the It's a two. whole different, you know, it's a whole different audience. So Mario is going to have a little boy, gamer, whatever uh, audience. And I mean, it's the same story as, as when I met uh, Arakawa and uh, convinced him to put Tetris in Game Boy. He said, Mr. Arakawa, you should include Tetris in every... Game Boy, when you sell Game Boy, and he said, why should I do that? I have Mario. I said, well, if you want little boys to buy your Game Boy, then include Mario. But if you want everyone to buy your Game Boy, then you should include Tetris. I think they actually put that line in the movie. You saw the movie Mm -hmm. just yesterday. So, um, and he called in his experts, and they agreed. And, you know, I, I said, by the way, after you sell, you know, the Game Boy with included with Tetris, you can still sell Mario and make the money off Mario. And uh, he agreed and uh, shook hands on a deal. And um, gosh, a couple of weeks later, I got on a plane and went to Moscow. And so, you know, as people start seeing this movie, I'm sure, you know, they're just thinking about just the political climate now, you know, with Russia. And, uh, you know, I think in the film it talked about Stalin. And, you know, so here we have uh, Putin and and, uh, the situation in Ukraine. I mean, I don't know. Do you ever think about how kind of strange things are now? Yeah, I, I, th- I think uh, things, well, I mean, Soviet Union, don't get me wrong, was strange. You know, like you go to North Korea now, it's strange. It's not how we think the world works. But at least the time that uh, I went to the Soviet Union, it was sort of towards the end, and people are starting to have hope for a new kind of life, uh, you know, freedom and uh those things were like on the horizon and they were moving towards that. That freedom seems to have evaporated today and you know, they're back to living in a very dark place where, where if you say the wrong thing, you end up in jail. So I, I, I feel bad about that. I feel bad for the people who are living in that situation. Uh, it's not their fault. It's they're, they're victimized by it. You know, you could say that throughout history, people have always been victimized by the people who are in power on top. They get them to send their children to fight wars that why would they, why would we want to, you know, in my case, I was 17 when uh, next year they're going to send me to Vietnam. What did they ever do to us? Why should we go there and, and kill people? That just makes no sense at all. Those decisions are made by people that are higher up and they convince us that, that we're dying for our country or whatever. At some point, people are people. 
and so the, the friendship between Alexei and me is, an, is a testament to the fact that here's an ordinary human being with another hu- ordinary human being, and we're friends. And it has nothing to do with, with politics or I- ideology. All that stuff can take a hike. Uh, friendship is stronger than ideology. Yeah, bonded over uh, a, a, a game and a Game Boy. <laughs> a game, yeah. So, you know, when I got to meet him for the first time, I was the first game designer he'd ever met. There's no no game business in the Soviet Union. There was no, like, people making games and, and uh, making money off of games or anything like that. Yeah, it was very interesting, eye-opening for him to find out about the game business because I explained everything. On my first meeting... You know, I basically explained how the business worked, how I got into the game business, because I was an unlikely character. I'm a Dutch guy, sounds like an American, living in Japan, visiting the Soviet Union. (laughs) It's like, that doesn't make any sense. And you're a deal maker. (laughs) I I was a wheeler dealer, yeah, so. Looking back, you know, now that this film has been released, reflecting on that time, what has that meant to you? It's a very important time in my life. It was definitely a turning point. Life before Tetris and life after Tetris is completely different. Fortunate uh, that I was able to figure out that Tetris was going to be a significant game. And that, that's maybe lucky me or maybe it's a skill. But, you know, there's, there's a little bit of, of luck and skill involved. I wouldn't change it for a, for a minute. People ask me, so what? weren't you crazy? Weren't you like think that you were in danger? And I said, well, yeah. So, you know, how do I explain it? And it's like, I would say 20% naivety and 80% determination. And uh, that ter- determination uh, has served me well throughout my life. That was Hank Rogers of Tetris fame. The film Tetris is based on his story, his determination to secure the rights to the Russian game. Rogers is on a mission to use his money and influence to make a difference in our green energy future. We'll hear more from our interview with him right after a break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a Master of Science program in travel industry management. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. Hawaii entrepreneur and climate advocate Hank Rogers is in Guam this week. He's there for an environmental conference where the island's governor, Lulian Guerrero, will sign a pledge for the island's sustainability goals. A father of four, Rogers is more determined than ever to use his influence to protect the future of generations to come. Hope just kind of feels like somebody else is going to solve the problem for us. It's our problem. We are the problem, and we have to fix it. So why am I on this track? I sold a company in 2005. It's a Hawaii-based company, uh, Blue Lava Wireless. Game. We were one of the first ga- uh, companies to make games for mobile phones. Sold that company for a bunch of money. And uh, <laughs> I was playing tennis at, at Wildlife Country Club, and I felt bad after playing tennis. And so I walked over to the front desk. Uh, doctor came over, checked me out. He said, looks like you're okay. Looks like a heat stroke, whatever. Would you like us to call an ambulance? 
sure, I'll call an ambulance. Ambulance came, you're okay. We're just gonna take you in for observation. Halfway to, the, to Straub, the uh, siren went on. And it's like, whoa. And I found out later that the ambulance guys didn't think I was gonna make it to Straub. I had 100% blockage of the Widowmaker. And in that, in that ambulance, first of all, I was looking at the ceiling, you gotta be kidding me, I haven't spent any of the money yet. <laughs> that was the first thing I said. And I said like, second thing I said, no, I'm not going, I still have stuff to do. And that, you know, after I have two stents, no problem. Uh, after I got to think about it, what did I mean by that? And uh, I decided to figure out what is it that's gonna upset me if I didn't do something about it by the end of my life, the next time. And I came up with my bucket list, my missions. And the first mission uh, came to me in the back of the newspaper said, oh, by the way, we're gonna kill all the coral in the world by the end of the century. And now this is the back of Star Advertising. This should be front page news because it's so important to all islands. Coral is so important to us and every place. So it was by the obituaries. And uh, anyway, what's causing it is ocean acidification, which is caused by carbon dioxide, which is caused by us. So, okay, mission number one, end the use of carbon-based fuel. To that end, I started the Blue Planet Foundation here in Hawaii because I believe that before I can ask other people to clean up their room, I have to clean up my room. My room is Hawaii. And so we started the foundation trying to figure out how we're gonna do this. And we went through many years in the beginning of people telling us it's impossible, there's no way, the electric company wouldn't even talk to us, the, the governor said I was kind of like, I don't know what I was talking about, whatever, that was lingual at the time. And um, well, we, per we persisted, because it's, it's all about determination. We got people on our side, we had kids go door to door and exchange 300,000 light bulbs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and finally we got a mandate. We were the first state in the country to have a mandate of 100% renewable energy. And that changed everything. The utility then started looking at it and they said, you know what, we looked at it, we, can we figured it out, we can do this by 2040. It's like, wow, that is a big turnaround, you know, from it's impossible to, yes, we can do this by 2040. Today, we changed the business model of the utility so they make more money by switching to renewables. Hawaii has already reached its 2030 goal of 40% renewable energy today. We went from it's impossible to killing it. Don't think that hasn't been noticed by the rest of the country. 22 other states and territories have similar goals to ours now. That's over 50% of the population right there. So it's moving across the country. But I mean, that's not enough. We need to move, have it be moving across the world. I'm, uh, I started a new um, NGO, a non-government uh, yeah. organization, in New York called the Blue Planet Alliance. And what I wanna do is get all the NGOs together and say, we're all gonna get together and fix this thing. So we're starting with island countries. Actually, we started with Guam. Mm -hmm. I, I understand you're from Guam. And uh, we started with Guam, which is a territory, but we got a Guam has already passed a, a mandate of 100% renewable energy by 2045. I'm meeting with the, the governor of Guam and we're gonna sign an agreement that makes Guam part of the alliance officially. Last year we signed on uh, Tonga, Tuvalu, and we're in the process of, uh, w with Palau. We wanna start the domino effect, starting with island countries and then start to affect countries. The theory is that we do it in a few places. You know, when you switch from fossil fuel to renewable energy, your energy cost goes in half. And when you do that, that causes an economic miracle because like what, Hawaii spends, we stopped coal last year. That was a billion dollars a year we stopped. 
and we still import $5 billion a year on oil. 30% goes to jet fuel, which may be difficult for us to change. 30% goes to ground transportation, which we can totally fix by electric and hydro hydrogen vehicles. And 40% goes to making electricity. That's $2 billion. Well, and you keep massaging this idea of hydrogen. Yeah, sure. So I took my ranch off grid. And to be off grid, you have to build the solar so that it works on a cloudy day. On a sunny day, we have all kinds of extra energy. And what do you do with that energy? You gotta do something with it. You can't just throw it away, that's ridiculous. And so when you see all these, these giant uh, solar projects in Hawaii, when there's too much sun, the electric company goes, whoa, we don't need that much, and they ask you to curtail. Well, that curtailed energy should be turned into something. It should be turned into hydrogen. Hydrogen is a great fuel for trucks and buses. If you put batteries, if you fill a, a truck or a bus with batteries, Basically, you're spending all your energy moving batteries because they're heavy, but hydrogen doesn't, uh, doesn't weigh nearly as much. And so, and, and you can charge a car with, with hydrogen in minutes, not hours. It's really the future is, is to use the excess energy that we have for all of our wind and solar, and you use that to make hydrogen. Well, now, uh, I know <laughs> the Governor Green has mentioned hydrogen as a future down the road for Hawaii. A big island mayor, Mitch Roth, yep. is interested in doing something over there. What a great name for a governor, Governor Green. <laughs> I know. I love it. I love it. But the, 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 the thing that we're missing in Hawaii, I would say, is that we have geothermal. And that geothermal is totally underutilized. Geothermal, and if you think about it, you know the the objections of 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 uh, Madame Pele. You know, there's the, there's this objections. Madame Pele has spoken. Madame Pele had has had two eruptions, and and one eruption basically got rid of all the houses that were next to Puna Geothermal and left Geo, Puna Geothermal. What better message could she possibly have left us than that? Geothermal is clean. It's tiny compared to wind and solar in terms of how much space it takes, and you can use the geothermal to make hydrogen. So and I we, can tell you're determined to make oh, yeah. sure that, that uh, somehow that's in our future. Uh, we should embrace it. This is kind of mana from heaven, if you will. Uh, this is a gift of, of the land, of the aina, to the people. We can make so much hydrogen that we could take that hydrogen, we could power Oahu, and then the excess energy, we could sell it to Japan. We could be the you know, the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy. So what's the stumbling block for getting into the next level? I mean, you know, you, you, you overtook the hurdles, you know, with Tetris and getting that squared away, but what's in our way of actually developing hydrogen here? I, I think it's uh, the willpower of the people. There's not enough willpower behind it right now. When our young people, you know, when they start taking over, they will have willpower. Because I, I remember I was at, uh, I think it was Parker School, and, and uh, I gave a talk. This young man raised his hand, and he, he asked me the question. He says, when will the needs of the many override the objections of the few? And I said, unfortunately, as my generation has failed at this. You know, if you look at the energy plans of Hawaii, it doesn't include geothermal. It's like, why? And the answer is, is when, when you grow up enough and you guys take over and say, well, we're not going to put up with this. It's not an evil thing. Yeah, it's why not? Yeah, why not? I, you know, I went to find out how it works. I went to Iceland, and it's just beautiful, the transformation that they've made in Iceland. 
They used to burn coal for everything, for heat, for electricity, for hot water. Now it's all geothermal and hydropower. Right, and New Zealand's embracing it. New Zealand is embracing it. Yeah, we should embrace it. Japan should embrace it, but they're like scared of their their hot spring industry. But we don't have a hot spring industry. I'll be going to uh, Okinawa to talk to them about seeing if they can't, we can't get Okinawa to become 100%, then they, other prefectures in Japan, will copy, just like other states copy us. Got to start somewhere. Okay, so that's Blue Planet Alliance? Blue Planet Alliance is the new one, yes. It's for the world. Blue Planet Foundation is for the, for the country. Frankly speaking, you know, there's a lot of things that, that you just don't know, and then the answer is you just got to do it. Uh, I remember being on a, on a panel, and uh, I said, we're going to go 100% renewable by 2045, and the guy next to me says, I'm a professor at the university. This is what I study. There's no way we're going to go 100% by 2045. And so I, I grabbed the mic and says, well, I'm not as smart as, the guy, as this guy, so we're going to do it anyway. And the answer is, we are going to do it anyway. Whatever it is that we put our minds to, we're going to do it anyway. That's, the, that's human nature, first of all. And we go from, and this is the big thing that we accomplished in Hawaii. We, get, we went from it's impossible to we are doing this. And that's the thing that we need to do in the world is we need to go from it's impossible to we are doing this. That's yeah. it. It's just a mindset. What's possible? It's all possible. Well, Hank Rogers, thank you very much. I appreciate you being here today. Thank you for having me. That was Hank Rogers. He is in the limelight as the backstory of the game Tetris. His story is now streaming on Apple TV+. Rogers is credited with securing the distribution rights of the addictive game as its popularity spread in the 1980s with the introduction of Nintendo's handheld Game Boy. Uh, Rogers is using his influence to advance his goals of a more sustainable future with green energy, from a champion for Tetris to a champion for climate change. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. What to do about the illegal fireworks in Hawaii? That is the subject of our reality check today. Investigations editor John Hill joins us this morning. Hi, John. Hi, Catherine. You know, you and I commiserate. You know, why do we have to hear fireworks on Easter, right? It's just <laughs> maddening. Yeah, <laughs> well, it is. What What did you find in in your uh, in your deep dive on this? I found that it's not very surprising that with the amount of fireworks that we see on New Year's Eve and other times during the year, that authorities have at various times made big busts and found big caches of fireworks. We're talking about hundreds of pounds, even more than a 1,000 pounds of fireworks at a time. But the interesting thing about that is that none of these seizures of large amounts of fireworks have really led to any information that I was able to tell about where they come from. They just sort of, I'm, I hate to use this pun, but fizzled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so uh, talk specifically about the cases that you came across uh, where we have, have found a, a lot of illegal fireworks, but nothing's happened. 
Well, there was one case that got some publicity last fall involving the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard didn't actually discover the the fireworks. It was a contractor who works for the shipping companies like Matson that noticed that a container didn't weigh what it was supposed to weigh according to what was on the manifest. And they alerted the authorities and they found out that it was filled with 13,500 pounds of fireworks. And they knew who it was coming to on Oahu and they knew where it was coming from. But the Coast Guard's primary concern is keeping the port safe and keeping people safe. And so they repackaged it and labeled it as hazmat and sent it back to the mainland. And as far as I could tell, and from what I was told, nobody was prosecuted. Well, it was interesting because I remember calling on that and I asked, you know, where did the stuff come from? Did it come directly from China? And they said, no, it came from Long Beach. And so they sent it back to get destroyed, I guess. But yeah, it is frustrating because you want to find out, okay, so did anyone pay a penalty? Yeah, and in this case, I guess the only penalty that was paid was that the fireworks didn't arrive here. Well, and okay. they weren't able to be sold. Yeah, and then th- there were uh, some other cases, right? Wasn't there one in Makiki? Yeah, there have been a couple of cases. HPD does these routine, especially on New Year's Eve, patrols um, trying to find people who are shooting off bottle rockets and so forth. And in the course of doing that, they occasionally come upon large amounts of fireworks. So there was a case, there was a case in Makiki that you talk about uh that you mentioned, where they responded to what was a domestic dispute, basically. And when they got there, they discovered that there were boxes of fireworks all over this couple's living room, adding up to more than 400 pounds. Um, and again, in that case, there there was a citation issued, but it the charges were dismissed. And then there was one about fireworks found in a U-Haul. Yeah, that was in Kailua, and that was on New Year's Eve, and there was a complaint to the to the police about a lot of fireworks going off in the, from this one house, and the police also noticed it, and they went to that location, and people were kind of milling in and out, partiers, and nobody would say who even owned the house or who was living there, but the officer noticed a big U-Haul van parked out in front and was able to see into one of the windows and saw that the cargo hold was filled with fireworks, and it turned out to be another 450 pounds of fireworks. But again, in that case, the the citation was dismissed, and as far as I could tell, they didn't even follow the lead of, like, who might have rented the U-Haul. Well, you know, we often turn to the legislature to try and enact laws to get their arms around this problem, um, but, you know, what's the status on bills there? Well, there were a lot of fireworks bills this year, as there are every year, and most of them or all all of them fail. But this year, there's one that's still alive that would create a sort of multidisciplinary task force. And I know people roll their eyes when they hear task force because they think, oh, they're just going to study it to death. But this, I'm told, is a operational task force that would bring together different law enforcement entities and actually start doing some interdiction of fireworks at the port and figuring out the whole distribution network around the island. All right. Well, we'll see uh, if that makes it through. But hopefully our next holiday will be fireworks-free. Let's see. What, what's coming up? Mother's Day? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Yeah. I mean, that is part of the problem. People, It goes on year-round now.
Yeah, which is sad because you've got you know, everybody from, you know, uh, uh, veterans to pets uh, to children with special needs, folks that are, are, are really severely affected. So hopefully something happens. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, John. Thank you, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beats Investigations Editor John Hill. Check out his story about fireworks on civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Bishop Museum, celebrating Earth Day with its Science and Sustainability Festival, featuring cakey activities, workshops, live music, and more, 9 to 3, April 22nd. Bishopmuseum.org. And it is now time for your fine feathered feature. We now go to the University of Hawaii Hilo Professor Patrick Hart, who today features a crimson honey creeper in this week's Manu Minute. The Apapane is a direct descendant of a flock of finches that somehow flew from Asia over nearly 3,000 miles of open ocean and landed in the Hawaiian Islands more than 5 million years ago. It's one of over 55 species of birds, now known as the Hawaiian honeycreepers, that evolved from that original group. And nowadays, it's the only one left whose song can still be commonly heard on all the main Hawaiian islands, especially if you're in a forest where the ohia lehua are blooming as their curved bills and brush-like tongues are perfectly adapted to forage on the nectar of these flowers. Even though apapane are a brilliant bright red in color, they are often more easily detected by their beautiful song, which has recently been found to vary between the islands and even between different forest patches or kipuka on the same island. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Department of Biology at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. That's a wrap for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to talk to the Department of Transportation Services as the city starts to prep for the start of rail service later this summer. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.